Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. More and more, we are moving to cities. Look at any demographic map of the U.S., and it's clear we're becoming a more urban nation. As such, cities are the vital link in our cultural, social, and economic well-being. And no one knew or understood cities better than Jane Jacobs. 100 years after her birth, her work, her insights, and her chronicles of cities are the gold standard by which we judge both the good and bad policy and planning decisions we make. Now my guest, Robert Canical, has written the first full-scale biography of Jacobs. Robert Canigal is the author of seven previous books. He's a recipient of numerous awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship. He was a professor of science writing at MIT. And his newest book is Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. Robert Canigal, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you here. Given how important Jacobs has been in discussions over so many years about urban issues, why has it taken so long for, for someone, as you've done, to really do a full-scale look at, at, her, at her life? Well, she only died in 2006, mm-hmm. and there were uh, a couple of... There have been a lot of scholarly studies, of course, right. and uh, there were one or two slight uh, biographies. I'm not diminishing them at all. And there was a, actually a delightful young adult biography of her, mm. Uh, for 13 and 14 year olds, that was that really captured a, a sense of her. But I think uh, she's a big figure to wrestle with. She's uh, important. She's articulate. She wrote a lot. She lived a long time, and um, so perhaps that accounts for it. What's one of the things that is so remarkable about her life and her influence on urban America? is that she really never had any formal education in urban planning or anything similar to it. That's right. She uh, bristled at, at the classroom in general. She uh, was raised in a, in a wonderful family in Scranton, Pennsylvania, that had a lot of tolerance for debate and discussion and reading and grappling with all sorts of subjects. Uh, it was really, in a lot of ways, ideal. But when she got into the classroom uh, in her local school and then later on in high school, uh, she had trouble with it. In uh, elementary school, she was always late, um, often late. Uh, she um, didn't listen to the teacher. Uh, once or twice, she got expelled. Then in high school, she was more interested in reading whatever she wanted to read you know, while the teacher was droning on. Uh, than doing what she was supposed to be doing. And um, uh, so she never went to college. She did go to college later for a couple of years, but she never graduated from college. When she did go to college, she took a couple of uh, years of classes at uh, Columbia University, the School of General Studies. And then she studied what she wanted to study. She studied geology and geography and uh, vertebrate biology and constitutional law of all things, and at this point, by the t- she was about twenty-five, she did great. She got all A's, mm-hmm. and for the rest of her life, she was uh, a compulsive reader and student student of the world. It's interesting, not to put too fine a point on this, but there seems to be sort of a nexus between her life, the fact that she was interested in so many things, this immense curiosity in a kind Mm -hmm. of disorganized way that really seemed to fit perfectly with her view of what cities were all about. I think that's a a good insight. I think she had uh, tremendous tolerance for... um, 
uh, a little confusion uh, surrounding chaos. She didn't, uh, as her son once said, we weren't neat freaks around the house. It wasn't uh, a perfect spick and span house. Um, and for those people who, and there are, you know, people are different, and some people like things ordered and just so and neat. And some of the planners of the time like things ordered and just so and neat. And Jane, on the other hand, saw a virtue in uh, uh, diversity and even a degree of confusion and even a hint of chaos. And she exulted in it because she saw that that was, that was where the life was. One of the things she talked about that she disliked was a kind of pretend order, in, in, I guess in her own life as well as in kind of fake cities that, that she saw spring up. Yeah, there was a, um, um, later in her life, a, a group called the New Urbanists, that's a capital N and capital U, a movement, a group, uh, a, a, planning, a planning philosophy, actually embraced some of the ideas of Jane Jacobs and talked about uh, the virtues of pedestrianism and walkability and uh, front porches that presumably brought people out onto the street and uh, talked about their roots in Jane Jacobs' thinking. And Jane herself didn't buy it. She, um, she was you know, polite and everything, but she saw the new urbanism as an attempt to um, stamp these new urbanist communities in a sort of a fixed and settled way that was not in the tradition of the old cities that had just sort of grown up. The new urbanism uh, led to these communities of what, I guess, what you would call this pretend order. Places um, like, like Rest in Virginia. And I don't think they considered themselves a new urbanist community, but there were many such communities later on. She had debates with uh, Jim Rouse, who was the founder of Columbia, which is a, a new city that started in Maryland in the 1960s, a, a would-be city. It's not a city. It's really uh, a little bit better than average suburb, <laughs> I guess right. you'd say. Well, I mean, one of the things she talked about that she loved about cities was that that they didn't have order necessarily, but that there was a strangeness to them, that you could encounter things that were unpredictable. That's right. Um, and I guess, you know, different kinds of people are drawn to different kinds of things. When uh, Jane first moved to uh, New York in 1934, first to Brooklyn and then to Manhattan, uh, she was immediately drawn to uh, Greenwich Village, which is even geographically and spatially in terms of the street grid is a, um, a violation against order. If you go above 14th Street, all the streets go up and down and east and west, and they're very neat. And in Greenwich Village, she found um, uh, uh, even the street grid that went off in weird directions, tiny little blocks uh, that you know, hardly even seemed to exist, and yet there was a lot going on in them. And she relished that. Uh, she enjoyed that, and she saw, again, uh, this, um, she saw in that a kind of raw life that uh, was stimulating and exciting and from which we, we can learn in, in everyday life. One of the other interesting things is how she viewed, I mean, her battles over the years as she became more of an activist, her battles against freeways or against kind of mass 
auto transportation routes. I mean, mm-hmm. the battle with Robert Moses on the Lower Manhattan Expressway is, is classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in uh, Death and Life, in the Death and Life of Great American Cities, uh, she has a whole chapter devoted to automobiles. She did not hate automobiles per se. It was the um, sort of blind accommodation of cities to automobiles, providing them with parking lots and parking garages and wide streets that diminish the sidewalks for pedestrians and, of course, expressways that just ripped into cities. And Robert Moses was most associated with that approach. He did it in the Bronx, he did it in Brooklyn, and he wanted to do it in uh, lower Manhattan by having this eight-lane expressway cross Manhattan Island from the East River Bridges to the, to the Hudson. Uh, and if that had happened, there would be no Soho, there would be no Tribeca, lower uh, Little Italy would have been decimated, as would Chinatown, as, and it would have had effects on Greenwich Village. All some of, the, some of the most interesting neighborhoods in New York wouldn't exist or would be you know, deeply threatened by the passage of this expressway. And uh, she beat him down on it. And then when she moved to Canada in 1968, almost the, t- the moment she got there, she got embroiled in another uh, freeway debate, the so-called Spadina Expressway, Expressway right? that would have gone right through her neighborhood in Toronto. Um, and she, she battled these as well. What did she think of Robert Moses? Well, there's a, a great story that... Um, uh, Robert Caro is an author, and he wrote uh, a book called The Power Broker, a 1,200-page book about the excesses of Robert Moses and about what he had done to New York. And uh, 1,200 pages, by the way, that I found it almost impossible to put down. I was sorry when it ended, 1,200 pages in all. But in the mid-1970s, Jane got an early copy of the of the book and stayed up late with her husband, reading portions of it and came away uh, saying, we knew Robert Moses was bad, but we didn't know he was this bad. <laughs> what happened to her in terms of an FBI investigation? She was, was red-baited at one point. Yeah, this was, um, I consider Jane's, well, I'm getting a little ahead of things, but I'll just say uh, when she wrote a rebuttal to an inquiry that she was getting from the Loyalty Security Board, or whatever they called it during the McCarthy era. Um, her statement about uh, the, the need to leave room for dissent that she had been brought up with, and her deep commitment to, the, to American values, is one of the most patriotic, beautifully patriotic uh, statements that I've ever that I've ever read. The background basically is that Jane had worked in the State Department um, after the war, working as an American propagandist, and uh, she would write articles about the American classroom or the American cafeteria, and they would be translated into Russian, and they would appear in a magazine that went to the Soviet Union called America. A-M-E-R-I-K-A, and it was sort of a joint agreement between the Soviets and the Americans. And at one point, one of her articles, somebody in Isvestia carried on about uh, what this slimy American capitalist, namely Jane Jacobs, was 
saying about uh, American architecture, for example. Jane was a deeply patriotic person, but she was also pretty unconventional. And um, there was some kind of connection with Alger Hiss, who was also in the State Department. It was in the heart of the McCarthy era. Everybody had to prove their, um, their loyalty, and an investigation ensued. I think there were 13 separate reports, and they found oddities about uh, Jane's behavior, but nothing at all um, incriminating her. She certainly was not sympathetic to the Soviet Union. She was not sympathetic. She was not a communist. Um, she was uh, a patriotic American in the best way. Read her uh, response to this. It was called an interrogatory where they asked her specific questions about her background. And she led off with a kind of forward that expressed her, um, her deeply held views. One of the most interesting things about that is, is not that she was caught up in that as so many people were so many during people that were. period, but that did, did it make her, did it have an impact on her? Did it make her more cautious? I don't know. I don't think so. I think if you look at her behavior uh, and what she did later, she was never afraid of anybody. The The title of the book is Eyes on the Street, but it went through a lot of uh, thoughts about what I would call this book. And one of the titles that I held on to for the longest time was simply one word, fearless. And I think that's what what Jane was. She wasn't afraid of anybody or anything. And at public meetings and in public ways and in private ways, she said what she wanted. She didn't know how to say what she didn't believe. She was just, you know, really, really fresh and open in what she had to say. And it's true that anybody who has ever written about Jane or studied Jane always comes to the conclusion that uh, you don't want to be asked what would Jane say about something because you could never predict it. She'd always surprise you. How did her interest and curiosity, her vast interest and curiosity that we talked about a little while ago, how did that narrow in terms of its focus to issues dealing with cities and urbanism? Yeah, yeah. Um, up until a certain point, uh, I mean, you've latched onto something that, that I think is true. Um, uh, until she was in her uh, late 30s, I guess, Jane had become a writer. She was interested in all sorts of things. Uh, for a while, she was um, uh, work during during World War II. Before she worked for the Office of War Information, she was working for a trade magazine and learning all about iron and steel. And when she did do the uh, propaganda work for the Office of War Information, again she was writing about all sorts of things. In 1952, cities among them, by the way, but not at all exclusively, and in 1952, she got a job at Architectural Forum, which um, soon put her on the front lines of issues related to architecture and uh, city planning. And for the first few years there, she was basically hewing to the party line, the party line being... um, Downtowns have to learn from suburbs that their, um, you know, that the that planning is a great thing. That cities and suburbs will be improved by planning, and it was only several years into her um, tenure at Architectural Forum that she found herself questioning that. Did she ever have any desire to become an architect? 
Not to my knowledge. I don't think so. Her husband was an architect. I was going to she married one. So that she married an architect, that. that's right, whose specialty was um, hospital architecture. You know, everything has a specialty. <laughs> Bob's was um, the design of not so much the exteriors, but the interiors of hospitals to best serve the patient and the people who care for them. She wrote the, the Death and Life of Great American Cities, I think it was back, what, 1961. It talk, appeared in 61. Right. Talk a little bit about how or if her views about some of those things changed in the following years. Um, I think in small ways they did. I, I can think of a couple of examples. Um, one is that um, one of the features of Death and Life is that she... Uh, challenges the suburban perspective of um, we, we need to spread things out. We need lower density. We need um, you know, the suburban split level. That's how people should be living. And Jane challenged that by pointing to areas in American cities that were very high density, uh, but that were not in any way slums that were actually very, very successful places where people love to live in Greenwich Village, for example, in parts of Boston. And she actually went to the extent of offering numbers uh, for how many uh, units per acre or per square mile, how many people per square mile. And uh, some of these numbers that she thought of as vital to a, a vibrant city were really quite high. And later, when she moved to, to Toronto, she lived in a neighborhood that was not at that kind of a density that was, uh, you know, certainly not suburban. It was a, a city neighborhood, but they were close-packed uh, ordinary houses, not quite row houses. In any case, the numbers did not live up to what she um, uh, had talked about in Death and Life. But her son later uh, admitted that he thought that in an effort to make this point, that she had kind of highballed it. I think that was the expression mm -hmm. he used that um, the numbers maybe were a little bit overstated. And she came to accept that, yes, you could live in, a, in an interesting, livable, vibrant city neighborhood that was not of the kind of high densities that she had talked about in Death and Life. Mm -hmm. That's one example. How did planners and academics, how did those people view her? Well... It's, it's interesting to think about uh, in terms of how an idea or a set of ideas get uh, accepted. Now Jane is revered in mm -hmm. the planning community and among architects, and uh, she's often thought of as the starting point for how to think about cities. It wasn't necessarily like that in the beginning. When the book came out in 61, several of the uh, reviews... Um, saw that they had in front of them a, an absolutely once-in-a-century kind of book that was challenging and important and was saying things that needed to be said. Uh, others dismissed it. Others said, you know, who is this person, this amateur? Some people thought of her as uh, um, uh, this, um, you know, this housewife. She was never a housewife. Jane was never a mere housewife. Uh, she was always working. Uh, she had help around the house. Um, and so she, she came under a fair amount of criticism at the, uh, at the beginning. And uh, I think it was only gradually that 
her ideas, um, they were embraced immediately by some, but it was only later that they were embraced by many. Uh, a European scholar um, wrote an essay not too long ago called The Density Turn. And what he meant by that was the he identified a point, I think it was in the 70s or 80s, when you began to see in the planning literature the people coming around to the idea that high density, which they had assumed was an evil, you know, associated with slum dwelling and over, overcrowded slums, uh, was now seen as the, the essential uh, element of lively city, city life. Uh, he called it the density turn, the turn in thinking. And I think, I don't have it in front of me now, but I think it was the 70s or the 80s. What kind of pushback, besides the new urbanism that you talked about before, what kind of pushback was there over the years to, to her ideas? Well, one is that uh, th I think the most frequently heard is uh, gentrification, that, yeah, the cities are, are, people are going back to the cities, there's more interest in living in cities, uh, but the result is, you know, good old supply and demand. Uh, rents are high, and in some cases, the very diversity of architecture and people and kinds of uh, structures that attracted people in the first place was disappearing and replaced by um, uh, condominiums that charge astronomical amounts, and that Jane was somehow responsible for this gentrification, which I think is just not... So I think um, in her, first of all, the word came only in 1964, the word gentrification was coined. But Jane talked about unslumming, that that was a good natural process for taking neighborhoods that were on the edge or on de in decline and uh, bringing them back. But she herself saw and talked about it in the book that um, that process could go could go too far, and you could lose the diversity that you originally wanted. Another criticism is that she didn't seem to be particularly mindful of issues of ethnicity and race and class, that she was a little too oriented to the physical layout of cities and didn't always have her fingertips on the perhaps more subtle aspects of um, of sociology and uh, the, the social issues that bedevil us in our city sometimes, mm -hmm. social and racial. How, how did she view racial tensions in cities? Was that an issue she looked at? It was not. Uh, she thought, I think, that uh, she could certainly, it was certainly evident that there were uh, many black people in um neighborhoods that had been passed over in the, through the Depression, through the war. Uh, war housing had led to uh, final mansions being broken up into warrens of smaller apartments, and uh, uh, many blacks were in some of these old neighborhoods. She could plainly see, see that, uh, and that many of them were in bad shape. But I don't think she saw that as anything extra and special that she needed to devote her attention to. I think she thought that this was part of the American story, that uh, so many uh, people from immigrant, so many immigrants had come to America and had gradually over the years worked their way out of 
what had been slums and that uh, the issues of race didn't need any special attention. This is, this is Jane. What I'm quoting now are Jane's responses to her own editors mm. who thought on the eve of death and life that she should address these issues. One of the things that, that seemed to change with her is that, that as she got older, that she moved from just theorizing about a lot of this to really becoming a, a hardcore grassroots activist. Talk about that. Well, I think she was an activist as early as the 1950s. Uh, they were going to put a, uh, a road through Greenwich, through uh, Washington Square Park, where her kids played. <laughs> and this was going to destroy the whole ambience. I was in Washington Square Park a couple of weeks ago. And it's still a delight. Thousands of people there in this um, uh, trees and greenery, but also lots of people all having a grand old time. And this would have been severely compromised by having this road go through the through the park. I think severely compromised is a pretty weak way of saying it. it would have been, <laughs> you know, really ruined. And uh, so she got involved in that lightly. At that point, she was just a foot soldier. And I think all through the, the 60s in New York, she was an activist, and then in Canada as well. She always said, however, that this didn't really come naturally to her, that, and that she was angry that uh, it was kind of necessary for her to take up arms, as it were, in these civic battles, because all she really wanted to do was go back to her little room and work on her books, but that she felt a kind of personal um, and moral responsibility and necessity to uh, take on some of these battles. Was she surprised even later in her life at the degree to which her work was still taken seriously and viewed as important? No, I don't think so. The, and that it I, don't had think, I don't think she was. And that it had endured so long. No, I think I think at the end uh, the, the danger went the other way. I think that um, she could see, you know, as people showed up at her door almost reverently, uh, which is an idea that she would have bristled at. But she realized that she had written this very very important book. She went off and wrote books on you know other subjects, and she particularly wrote about economics and healthy economies, healthy city economies. But um, to say that she was surprised at the response to death and life, I don't see any sign of that. I don't think she was particularly, um, that it mattered particularly about hmm. to her. I think what mattered most to her and that she craved and that she loved was the chance to, uh, at her leisure, read what she wanted to read, think what she wanted to think, write what she wanted to write, and have the pleasure and satisfaction of dealing deeply with some of these, these subjects. That's what she wanted, and that's what she got. Robert Canigal, the book is Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs. Robert, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. Thank you.